Well, I want to encourage you to open up um, a Bible, if you have one, to Jeremiah chapter 17. Uh, the text of what I'm going to be speaking on will be, um, is, is pasted below the video, either on the church website or on the YouTube uh, video. You can see, if you scroll down, uh, you will see the text of this passage below, so you're welcome to read on that way. But I want to read to you um, a number of verses from the chapter 17 of the book of Jeremiah, an Old Testament prophetic book, a book that was um, uh, written uh, many hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. And so we're stepping backwards in the, in the scriptures. We've been spending a lot of time in the Gospel of Mark recently, but I wanted to take a break um, this week and just preach a standalone message from these verses. I'm going to read to you verse 5 to 10. And it says this, Thus says the Lord, so this is words God is directly speaking to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is recording them verbatim. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Now, an unusual thing happened this week in that I had read this scripture um, on Monday morning and when I was in need of feeling encouragement from the Lord. And he spoke to me in a sense in that these verses were impressed on my heart and I began to understand our context as a church within the light of what is being said here in the summons to trust the Lord. And of course, if you could boil down God's message to humanity um, into just a few words that runs all the way through the entirety of Scripture, from the first page to the last page, I think you could boil it down to this summons. Trust me, all the way through the Bible from the very beginning, when God spoke to Adam and Eve and said, you know, you can have any tree in the garden, but don't touch this one. He was an, it was an invitation to trust him. Do you believe that I want to do you good? And of course, that's the central message of the Christian faith. The invitation to believe in Christ is an invitation to trust him, to say, I can't save myself. I need a savior. I need the Lord Jesus to save me by his death upon the cross. That's the heart of the Christian message, the invitation to trust God. And so I was reminded of this fact because I was conscious of the ways in which I personally uh, experiencing a wavering of trust and the the uh, the the kind of consequences of that in my life and the way in which I was feeling spiritually in need of a word from God. And then I shared the verses with um, some of the leaders in the church and then I wrote to the rest of the church this week, if you receive our emails, um, calling us to, to a time of prayer in the near future and using these verses as, an, as a, a summons to the whole church. And then two of the women in the church, um, Lucy and Kakeli, wrote to me um, separately, uh, both of whom saying that within this week they had also felt that God had put these verses on their heart. And uh, I was struck by that. It's an unusual thing. It doesn't often happen where a number of people come to me and say, God's speaking to me and he's put the same passage on my heart. And that's an unusual thing and a beautiful thing when it happens. And I felt very strongly that the Lord wanted me to preach on this because, uh, you know, we, we're at a strange season um, it, it, for those of us who are in London in the sense that we've just been 
I'm told that we've entered into a tier two lockdown and it, it felt as though we were kind of moving towards more liber- liberty in our day-to-day lives and hopefully something of a return towards normality. And then we find that the, the pressure of, um, of the, uh, the laws are moving against us in that regard. And we're feeling something of the frustration of an ongoing crisis. And I wanted to speak into that and to help us to see what our heart response ought to be, what it means to trust God in a season like this and how that can impact our lives, how our lives should look different from the world around us. And of course, we have to understand everything that we're saying within the wider context of suffering, the wider context of a time, a season of trial, a season of testing, a season in which we find ourselves as a society and also as individuals, uh, at, you know, in a sense, a collective sense and a personal sense, all of us going through challenges that we've never faced before. And the scriptures obviously speak to suffering in all kinds of ways. And more or less, I think you can divide suffering into two categories. In, in a crude sense, you can. And um, borrowing some terms from medicine, from, from health, there are acute problems and there are chronic problems. The acute sufferings, and, and both of them, by the way, are mentioned here in this passage. And he describes the time when heat comes, a heat wave, a moment of, of the blazing heat coming upon you and, um, and the threat of, of, um, of, of what that can mean if you're living in the Middle East where heat can come like a blast and then he describes this year of drought this chronic problem and I think that suffering more or less falls into those two categories we have the moments in life when the heat comes this is the acute challenges that we face a crisis flares up in our lives or around us and it has the potential to knock us sideways to destabilize us for a few moments to for us to have to reorient ourselves and understand how we're going to respond to a crisis these are acute problems And you can think of it in terms of disease. Acute diseases are those ones that strike you very suddenly and can be life-threatening. But then, of course, in life there are chronic issues as well. Uh, Drawn-out suffering. Suffering which is a test really of your endurance. It's not so much that it catches you unawares and that it knocks you over, but rather that it wears you down over time. And as I've reflected upon the last um, you know, seven or eight months since we've been experiencing all these strange challenges that we've been going through, I think we've, we've seen the rare cocktail of both of those situations coming together. That on the one hand, we've been afflicted by acute issues that have arisen, some of them very personal. Uh, I think as a consequence potentially of lockdown, some of us have experienced relational frictions like we haven't encountered in the past. Or you've, you've been going through marriage problems or the challenge of living with people. You don't want to be with the entire time if you're in a flat share, but you're forced into that. Or, um, you know, one of the, 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 uh, the most important examples of this was the, the um, eruption of, of emotion and suffering and all that came out of the death of George Floyd and the way that it impacted many of you in a very deep sense. Of course, not that the problem of racism is an acute one. It's a chronic one. It's a long-term one. But it was, it was confronting us in an acute way. So we faced those kinds of flare-ups in the, in the recent months. But we've also faced this against a backdrop of chronic um, difficulty of, of this long, drawn-out um, uh, suffering, this long drawn out trial, this experience of the destabilizing of our lives when we've been um, thrown into a situation which is very unfamiliar in the, in the context of this virus and of, of lockdown itself. Now, the reason why I paint that as a backdrop is because I think we need to ask the question, what good can come of it? What would God 
want to do through moments like this, whether it's the acute or the chronic, it doesn't matter. Why does God allow us to experience all of these, all of these things? And one of the answers that the scriptures give, and which I think this passage points to, is that suffering is the great revealer. Suffering is the thing which exposes uh, our source of reliance, what we've been building our lives upon. It's the revealer. And this is true in a very general sense at a national and societal level, first of all. When you think about how our culture has, has, uh, has moved very definitely and steadily towards secularism over the last you know, 70 to 100 years, um, large-scale abandonment of belief in God. And we've now moved the basis of our trust from a, from a belief in a living God who is over us, who creates us, who has a purpose for us. We've moved it from that basis to a new one, a scientific worldview, a naturalistic worldview, a secular worldview in which meaning is constructed, is invented by humanity for our own uh, for, for self-service, for our own good and benefit. And of course, this hasn't really been tested until now. You know, we, we've, we've not had to see our worldview be put to the test until this moment. And what I think we're witnessing is something of the bankruptcy of, of the secular worldview. And I think we see this most evidently in the unbelievable fear that has gripped um, not only our nation, but the nations and the way in which we are a slave to fear in times like this. And you can contrast this, you can, you can do a side-by-side contrast with the, the situation as it was back in 1918. We'd just come off the back of the First World War, millions of men had been slaughtered, and then a, a virus uh, afflicted the Western world, the, and of course globally, the Spanish flu. And uh, it's estimated that something like 50 million people were killed on, on the back of that virus. But what was the reaction of the populace at the time and here in Britain and among the churches was, was nothing like what we're seeing today. There was a calmness, there was a, almost a stoicism, a resilience. And it makes sense. They'd just gone through four years of brutal suffering. People were, were, steel, were steely. They were, they were able to you know, explore their sense of trust, what they were relying upon in life. And they reacted very differently to this wave of death that, that moved across the globe. And now we move forward to 2020. And we see something which is significantly less dangerous, but which has been reacted to with a great deal more fear. And I think that what we're seeing here is the bankruptcy of a secular worldview. We're seeing the revelation of the things that, that, you know, what we're relying upon as society coming to the fore in the way that we're reacting to this particular situation. Now, so suffering is a revealer. And this is true at a societal level, but it's also true at a very personal level also. And this is really where I want us to dwell today. Suffering allows you to know yourself. The next verses, from verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The heart is deceitful above all things. In other words, our ability to really know ourselves is, is limited. We have a limited capacity to understand our own hearts, our own motivations, our own idols, our own gods. And suffering has the capacity to draw that self-knowledge out so that you see yourself truly in the light of day. Uh, Kathy Keller wrote this. She said that pull up uncontrollable emotions by the roots and you'll find your idols clinging to them. Pull up uncontrollable emotions by the roots and you'll find your idols clinging to them. 
And it seems to me that when you're going through a time of particular challenge and suffering and frustration, that process is catalyzed and accelerated tenfold. You experience these uncontrollable emotions. And then as you examine your reaction to your situation, you begin to see the idols which are underneath your emotions. You begin to know yourself and you know the way that God knows you, the God who searches the heart and tests the mind, as it says here in this passage. Now, what does God want to see in us then is the question. Maybe we've been displeased with what we've seen in ourselves. And the question is, what does God want of us? What does it mean to be a person who trusts in him? And I want to, I want to lay this passage open for you both negatively and then positively. We're going to begin with the negative. This is how the passage begins. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert, and he shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. And I think the way we can summarize this is, if we're speaking negatively here, here, is that God is describing here the failure of the godless life, the failure of the atheistic life, the failure of the life which turns away from God. You say, well, who does this describe? And obviously this describes in a very, very accurate way our world at large. Curse is the man, it says, who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. If you could ask, what is it that best describes the philosophy of our age? And I would say it's, it's a man-centered view. We've largely abandoned other sources of reliance and strength and we've turned inwards to our own capacity, our own ability, our own scientific endeavor, technology and all the rest of it. This is the age in which we trust in man. So it then applies out there. But listen, before you dismiss the sharp edge of this passage, I think there's a way in which this applies to us all. Because every one of us has the capacity, I think, to move away from a confident trust in God towards a reliance upon ourselves or upon humanity in general. We are breathing in the air of secularism. So even if you're a Christian and a professing believer, the air that you breathe every day of your life is the air that assumes God isn't here watching over us, but that we must rely upon ourselves. And so even a professing believer, somebody who says with their mouth that they love Jesus, can in their heart wander away from a true and pure devotion and trust in him. And you can functionally become like an atheist, which is to say that even if your mouth professes one thing, really the, the, the dynamics of your heart are relying upon another thing altogether. We can functionally live that way. We can live in an atheistic way. Now, how, how would you know if that was describing you? And I think we need to look at what God says here about such a person. He says, He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited land. In other words, when God is not central in your life and when you are not actively and deliberately and constantly trusting in Him, you will experience these consequences. This is what happens to us. Let's break this down then. What is God describing? And I think there are a few things, a few ways we can describe it. I think He's describing here, first of all, a sense of isolation. A sense of isolation. Now, the scriptures show us that the person who is actively and deliberately and constantly trusting in God, will never feel isolated. 
I'll take you, for example, into the 139th Psalm. It says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. In other words, you know everything about my life. It says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot attain it. The psalmist is describing the way in which the person who is walking with God never feels truly isolated. They feel hemmed in. They feel that he's behind them, in front of them. His hand is upon them. They're aware that even when they are physically alone, they are never isolated. That's the experience of the believer, the person who's walking with God. But what he's describing here when God says, look, describes this curse, he says this godless person, this person who's functionally acting as though God is not there, is like this shrub in the desert. They're kind of isolated and alone. They live, it says, in an uninhabited salt land. There's a sense of being absolutely abandoned and, and, and without help and without hope. This isolation is the first thing. Another, another aspect of this then is a sense of exposure, of being exposed I'll take you into another psalm here to show you that the believer must never feel this way. The believer doesn't ever feel exposed. They feel protected. Psalm 61 says, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you and my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. He uses four different descriptions to describe the way he feels totally sheltered. He calls God a refuge. He calls him a strong tower. He describes him like a tent. And he describes him as having wings that are covering him. So whatever's going on in life, the psalmist says, look, I feel totally surrounded. I feel protected. I feel enveloped by the love and the presence of the living God. But what Jeremiah is hearing from God here is that the person whose trust is not in God so that they are dwelling in parched places of the wilderness. They're in the desert and they feel utterly battered by the elements, by the heat at, during the day, the cold at night, the dryness of the air, the total um, exposure to the elements, which is the, the thing which kills someone who's in the desert, isn't it? That total exposure, the lack of shade, the lack of, of, of um, sustenance. And then another way you can describe this, then a third way, is a sense of emptiness. I think, again, to take you to another psalm, the believer, the person who's walking with God, should never really feel empty. So Psalm 34, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He's describing that sense of daily sustenance and satisfaction and being full in your spirit, even if your belly is hungry. That God is is the one who sustains you, who fills you, satisfies you, gives you everything you need in life. And that this is the experience of the person who is walking with and trusting on and near to God. But what God is describing here to Jeremiah for the person who is not any of those things says that they're this shrub in the desert, that they are in an uninhabited salt land. Of course, what it means is that you feel parched, you feel utterly dried out and withered away and, and brittle 
and lacking and, and absolutely uh, in need. So what I'm wanting you to see here, as we consider this from a negative perspective, is that I think you can read this passage in a couple of directions. We read it, first of all, as a warning. And the warning goes like this. It says, if you stop trusting in God and, and making God your, the one you rely upon, which is what we've done nationally, but also what we can do as individuals, when that's the case, you will find yourself soon enough in an experience of the desert place. You'll find yourself where these things become true of you. This isolation, this exposure, and this emptiness. We can read it as a warning. It says, don't wander away from God. But I think we can also read it backwards. And you can read it as a diagnosis. Which is to say that if you find yourself in life in a situation where you feel these things are true of you, you feel this total isolation. You feel this emptiness and this exposure. You feel the battering of the heat by day. You feel that you're in a desert place. Then you must look at it as a diagnosis. And you read this passage backwards and you say, well, if this is my experience, then what I'm, doing, what, what I'm tasting here is I'm tasting what God says is, the, is a curse. And if I'm tasting a curse, why? And it says that curse is the man who trusts a man and makes flesh his strength. We need to be able to see ourselves in the light of this scripture and to understand the danger that we're in when our lives are falling apart because we're going through difficult times, when our lives are fragmenting or fracturing or dried out and brittle and broken because we're going through difficult times, when our emotions are volatile and all over the place and we're anxious and full of fear and all those things, when all those things are true of us, we need to look at ourselves and say, well, the scriptures diagnose this problem. For whatever reason, I'm cut off from real fellowship, I'm real trust in the living God. I want to remind you of the verses I read to you right at the start of this uh, service in Psalm 107, where it said that some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. And this is the experience, isn't it? This desert place. And what does God do? It says that when they cried to the Lord in their trouble, He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. He describes that sense of satisfaction. He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. The person who's wandering and alone in the desert feels hope when they see a city. The city often in scripture speaks of safety, of refuge, and indeed of the very presence of God. From a place of isolation and aloneness and danger to a place of safety. A place of sustenance where there's food, where there's drink, where there's shelter, where there's community. And the scriptures are saying, come home. Come home. Are you isolated? Are you feeling exposed? Are you feeling empty? Come home, the Bible says. Everything that you're feeling is a consequence of your having wandered away from a true trust in the living God. Come home. Now, I want to turn back to this passage in Jeremiah and consider it then from a different angle, which is to say positively. So far we've looked at it as a curse. What happens when man makes man his trust? But there is also a positive aspect here when in verse 7 and 8 it says this, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. What is God promising here? And what we're looking at is the assurance of putting your trust in Him. 
What is he promising? Let me just rule out a couple of things. He's not saying that the person who trusts in him will not experience hard times. It's not that at all. We know that every believer will go through grief, will go through danger, will go through suffering just like everyone else. You're still in the desert after all. He's not, all, he's not, he's not to- promising total protection either, that sickness won't touch you or that, um, that you, won't, you won't experience the pain of loss or all these kinds of things and harm. But what he is saying, it seems to me, is that even when you're in that place of drought and danger and heat, what he's saying is that you can have this unbreakable connection with the living God, which is your source of life and sustenance, so that you can stand up under the experiences that others cannot. No matter what comes. The image here is of a tree. There's a vivid one, because if, you're, if you've ever been to Israel, you'll know that in the heat of summer, most of the land becomes relatively barren and arid and dry, except for where there is irrigation, man-made irrigation channels. But the exception being the great water source, which is the River Jordan, which runs from north to south, straight down um, through, the, through um, the east side of the nation. And its banks are always green, and trees grow along its banks. And so that even in the blistering heat of the summer, in the Middle Eastern heat of the summer, where there is just desert, just, to the, just out to the east of the river, where trees are planted, they remain green. And he's describing this as, this is your experience, this is you in life. Your roots go down to, to streams, perhaps underground streams. You have a source of sustenance, a source of life which doesn't run dry. Ten years ago, my wife and I spent some time in, in Israel for about six weeks uh, during her medical elective. And while we were there, we took a trip out into the Judean desert. And the Judean desert is a barren wasteland. It's beautiful, but it's barren. There's not a plant in sight. It's just rolling hills of rock. And we went down into a wadi. A wadi is a gorge between, you know, between rocks that's been worn out by, by water over time. And it's, it's a very dry place. But down in, as you trek down into this wadi, and you, you see nothing but lifeless barren rock all the way down until you bend, you go around a corner where the path turns, and then across the wadi, and on the face of the rock on the opposite side, there is the most unexpected thing, which is a monastery, St. George's Monastery in, in Wadi Kelt which is built into the side of the gorge and surrounded by greenery, palm trees and, and various other uh, plants and foliage that surround it. And it, it takes your breath away when you see it. You think, that's beautiful. I want to go down there. And the reason why it's there in this barren wasteland of, is that they have a water source. There's a small stream that runs through the bottom of this wadi and which doesn't run dry. And this monastery has been there for centuries as a result. And it's an image there of what we're describing here. A place of spirituality, a place of sustenance, a place of life, even in a barren wasteland. And that ought to be the picture of the church of Jesus Christ and indeed of the individual Christian. That you, even when everything else is dry, you have life in yourself because you have roots that go down into God and into a sense of trust in God. What does that look like in the life of a person? Remember, of course, that God himself is the fountain. That's what he says in verse 13 describes himself as the fountain of living water. What does that look like? And I think there are two marks that are described here, the person whose trust is in God. The first 
is that you have emotional resilience through suffering. Emotional resilience through suffering. And I say that because he specifically points to the emotional life of this person. He says that he does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remains green, and is not anxious in the year of drought. In other words, there's no fear when the acute sufferings come. Those things, that, those crises that flare up out of a mom- in, in, in a momentary way, in, a, in an aggressive way, does not fear when heat comes, is one description. And you can think here the image of Christ himself in the bottom of the boat. There he was, uh, the storm was whipping up around the, na- around the disciples in the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is asleep in the bottom of the boat. No fear. The disciples are utterly terrified. Jesus is having a nap. He does not fear in a crisis, but also is not anxious. And you think about um, the context here. It describes a year of drought. And I think this is a very apt description of the situation that we're in during lockdown. A year of drought. And many people are experiencing rising anxiety. We know this is true. I saw an article just this week about the rising anxiety that's been true over the last decade but it also has come to an acute um, problem for many during lockdown. And it says that this person, when they're going through this chronic problem, this year of drought, is not anxious. It reminded me of these verses in Habakkuk 3, where it says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, Describing a time of economic ruin, barrenness, and danger that comes on the back of drought. Then he says this, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This is the believer. He is not anxious in the year of drought. Even if there's ruin, even if there's destruction, even if there is, there is no harvest, no, no, um, no fruit on the vine, joy does not go. I think this is the very thing that's lacking in our world, this, this emotional resilience that we're describing here. And this is why I want to underline it for you as Christians. This is how we stand out. This is what ought to be different about us. We ought not react the way the world reacts. We don't need to be anxious in the way the world is anxious. We don't need to fear in the way the world fears. When crisis comes or when we're worn down through, through prolonged suffering, The Christian is not somebody whose emotions are dependent upon the circumstances they're in. The Christian is somebody whose whose roots, like the tree, go down into streams of living water and finds that they are not anxious and they're not afraid. There is a calmness. There's a peace. There's a happiness, even, that marks you, even in the worst times of life. This is one of the markers, this emotional resilience. And the second one is this. He describes the way in which the believer who's trusting in God continues to do good to others even when they're going through such difficult times. They continue to do good with their lives. Their life produces goodness. I think this is what is meant when he says that they don't fear when heat comes because its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. The leaves are green The fruit continues. Now, this is, of course, the very opposite of what you expect 
when someone's going through a tough time? What happens? Usually when someone's suffering, they turn inwards. Everything becomes about me. I get full of self-pity. I want attention from others. I want the comfort of others. I want to wallow in my, in my, in my misery. And of course, I'm no good to anyone. This is what typically happens in the life of a person who's suffering and going through a difficult time in life. And this is why it's such a, it's such a striking image. Because he's saying, look, here's this tree in a desert, and yet this tree continues to be green and continues to produce fruit. In other words, it's blessing everyone around them. You may have met such people from time to time, people who can have the worst that life can throw at them, and yet they still care about others. They still are interested in the good of others. They're still fruitful, productive, full of benefit to those around them. And he's saying, why? Why? Because the Christian has an infinite supply of the grace of God. There's a striking passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul's describing his own life and the sufferings that he'd gone through. And yet the fact that God was still using him. So rather than the suffering causing him to turn inwards into self-pity and misery and, and wallowing, he says rather it was an opportunity for all of God's grace to be shown. And I want to read you these verses in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. In other words, our, our, our physical bodily lives are brittle and fragile, but within them, like in a, jar, a clay jar, we, we actually contain treasure. And that's the gospel. That's our connection with the Lord. We have this treasure in jars of clay, he says, to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Yes, we're weak, but God is strong. and We're connected with this infinite supply of grace. He says, we're afflicted in every way. So we're not spared from suffering. And he begins to describe it. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed. You may well feel perplexed right now as you look at life. But he says, but we're not driven to despair. He says, we're persecuted. People oppose us, hate us, feel angry with us for the things we believe. But he says, we're not forsaken. God's still with us. He says, we're struck down. And Paul had been struck down many times, whether through shipwreck or stonings or beatings or sufferings. He says, but we're not destroyed. Every time we trip, we're not broken. We're not broken beyond repair. He says, we're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. In other words, all of our suffering, he says, produced an opportunity for us to show that we are reliant upon a living God who is more than enough. Now this is where I think it's so important that you are honest with yourself. As I said, I think we're going through a year of drought. And that was the thing that struck me about this passage when I read it earlier in the week. We're going through a year of drought in lots of ways. I feel this as a pastor. I feel the frustration of... You know, I, I live for fulfilling my ministry in the context of the community of the church, and yet the very thing that we're denied right now is the fellowship of the believers. It's a year of drought. It's a year of drought relationally. It feels like a drought spiritually. <clears throat> it feels like a drought in terms of work and work opportunities for some of you. 
It feels like a drought in friendships and and, in all kinds of ways. We're facing a year of drought. There's no question about that. This This is really a strange time. Which description is most true of you in these moments? If you find yourself sinking into despair at a time like this, or into anxiety, or into anger and frustration, if you find yourself feeling the isolation I described, or the emptiness, or the exposure, if these things are the things that mark you, I want to remind you that this is atheistic, in the sense that it, it preaches that God isn't with you. And you need to be honest, if that's your experience right now, that you've wandered away from a real trust in God. The promise, the invitation, is that you can be fruitful. You can be full of life. You can be green and lush and full of vigor, even in this season, even if it gets worse. I know that for some of you, the suffering around us is as nothing compared with the suffering you've been going through personally. It's like one thing layered on top of another. And yet you still remain green. Let me come to a conclusion here and just ask this then. How, how do we recover a sense of trust? This is what God wants, isn't it? Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. How do we recover trust in God and a confidence that enables us to stay green in this time? And I want to give you a few gospel encouragements as I close. Number one, Jesus is the only man who ever lived whose faith did not waver, who absolutely fulfilled this passage. Every other human being who's ever lived has vacillated between one state and the other. We have moments of trust and we have moments of wandering away from God. And I say that because I want you to be liberated in a sense from an expectation of perfection. The reason why... Christ was a perfect man, why he never sinned is because he never failed to trust God. It was his trust in the Father which enabled him to always obey. His obedience flowed from his faith. So that he always knew God is good and his word is good and if I follow his word, good will come of it. He never doubted the goodness of God. His faith never wavered. If it had wavered, he would have sinned. He never sinned, therefore his faith never wavered. Jesus is the only man who who completely fulfilled this. And that's liberating for us to know. He's the only deservedly blessed man, in other words. Every one of us deserves the cursing that's described here. Here's a second gospel truth. That Jesus is merciful to to us in our weakness, in our frailty, in our fickleness, in our wobbles, in our changeable emotions, in our moments of trust that then give way to moments of doubt and despair and fear and wandering and prayerlessness and all the rest of it. Jesus is merciful. And I'll tell you how we see that. We see it in this way. That when Jesus went to the cross for us, the Bible says in the New Testament that he became cursed for us. He took upon himself the curse that we deserved. And that's exactly the language that's used here. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. And how did Christ experience the curse for us on the cross? He experienced it in this sense, that on the cross he was totally isolated. He experienced hell the hell of isolation of being cut off from the Father there on the cross. 
The curse that's described here by Jeremiah, of being like a shrub in the desert, of being parched. Jesus experienced that to the fullest degree, spiritually and physically, when he hung upon the cross. He was cursed for us. He was parched for us. He was totally isolated. He was totally exposed. He was totally emptied. And he experienced that so that he could atone for our failure. So that all of this curse that's described here would be laid on him and so it could be taken off of us. Jesus has made it possible, in other words, for you to be forgiven for your fickle faith. Which brings me to my last gospel truth. Christ's belief in the Father did not fail him. Then in the end, he was totally and absolutely vindicated by trusting in God. Yes, he had to go through the experience of the cross, but what happened on the other side? His faith was vindicated. First, by his resurrection from the dead, and then by his ascension to the right hand of the throne, where he is now seated with the Father, ruling and reigning over all things. He was vindicated. And he is the pattern for the Christian The reason why you can face suffering like Christ did is because you know that your faith in God will not ultimately fail you. You know that he'll work all things together for good and the proof of it is that God did not abandon his son, Jesus. He vindicated his faith. Yes, he allowed him to experience the curse on the cross, but then he thoroughly vindicated him and and raised him up and made him Lord over all things. And Jesus does the same This is the pattern of the Christian life. He does the same for those of us who trust in him, even when we're suffering, even when we can't answer the question of why. We're confused and we're perplexed and we're daunted and we're terrified even by the circumstances we're in. If our faith remains steadfast, God will vindicate you through it. He will bring you to a place where you can look back and say, God is good, he had a plan, and he never abandoned me. I feel the pressure and an urgency in my heart that this is something we need to remember. Because there, is, there would be nothing worse for us as a church and as individual Christians than that during this time, we should more resemble the atheistic world we're in than the people of God. If our emotions are merely a mirror of the secular world in which we exist, then what is our faith? And what good is it doing us? It's so vital that we as Christians are different And maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe your experience is that you feel everything I've described, that isolation and so on, because you've never really tapped into the source of life. You've never really come to know that God is good and that he loves you. I want to invite you to experience that love for the first time today. I want to encourage you to reach out to him in prayer. Christians, let's come back to the Lord now. We're going to worship And I want to just begin this time of worship with a prayer. And it's something of a prayer of repentance. And you need to pray with me in your spirit if this is something that describes you. But Jono, would you come up and just get ready to lead us in worship. Father, we're so struck by this vivid descriptions, this contrasting descriptions of what it means to be away from you, the cursed life what it means to be with you, the blessed life that's blessed even in the midst of pain and suffering and agony. Father, we repent to the extent that our lives sometimes resemble 
the despair of an atheistic worldview. But I ask you, Lord, to rekindle faith and trust, reliance upon you, to draw us back into your presence, to forgive us for our weakness, and to restore the strength that is ours in Christ. I pray that those who don't know you will cross that line for the first time today from a place of isolation, of realizing that their worldview is totally bankrupt, to a place of knowing you and knowing that their life is secure in you no matter what happens. I ask this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.